Welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. Yes, indeed. God is good. All the time. He is good. Yes, he is. Well, um, not only God is God good, and his name is above all names, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows exactly what's going to happen before we even have an inkling of it. Um, I list out the prayer focuses of the week, like months and months in advance. And then Mike was like, hey, man, what's the prayer focus of the week? And I was like, well, it's going to be missionaries and, and mission agencies. And then we happen to have a family here that is uh, a part of the International Mission Board. <laughs> uh, that's just how God works, right? We didn't know. They didn't know <laughs> months ago. And we have a family here that's with us. And so that that prayer was directly affecting a family that is here. And we're grateful that you guys are here with us and the work that you're doing overseas. But it's just interesting how God works things out like that, right? Yeah, he is good and he is faithful. Well, church, we are in John chapter 5, if you want to flip there as we kind of get started this morning. It's actually nice that this is the first Sunday in a while where the, my Bible is not almost blowing out of my hands. So I can just leave the scripture there and, and reference it as we go. But um, I'm going to read the scripture here in a moment, but I want to remind you that we are we are doing the Q&A. So if you have questions throughout the, the sermon this morning, please text those questions into the number that's in the digital bulletin. And then after uh, communion, uh, Mark and I will come up here and, and work to answer some of those questions for you. So okay, please keep that uh, in the back of your mind if you would. So John chapter 5, I'm going to read our text this morning. It's going to be verses 1 through 18. So just follow along with me as I read. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem a sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which was five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We're so grateful uh, for the, the fact that you've called us to live in community and to be seeking your word together seeking the wisdom that is contained within these pages, that guide us, that shape us, that give new life, that bring hope and clarity 
for what it is you've called us to in this life. And Father, would you now stir in us, Lord, the affections for you and for your word, that our focus would be razor sharp over these next few minutes as we look to John chapter 5. Help us and guide us. Speak through me truth and truth alone. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a reminder, text questions if you have any. We'll come back and ask, answer those as we get there. So what do we have going on here? We've got another scene change. If you've been with us through John, you've seen that like, here's a scene. Okay, then here's a scene and then here's a scene. Uh, this time, Jesus is going up back up to Jerusalem. Uh, he'd been spending some time in his hometown. Remember that? And now there's a feast taking place, and it, it seems that Jesus is going to somehow participate in what's going on. But in our introduction, we've got some specific details about the place that is referenced. That's going to help us kind of understand what's going on. So in this particular part of Jerusalem, we're talking like the ancient city, right, Jerusalem. There is a pool near one of the gates called the Sheep Gate, and it's called the Pool of Bethesda. Seems to be pretty significant structure. There's these five roofed colonnades, uh, an impressive place. In fact, if you go and sort of Google um, the Pool of Bethesda, you see some kind of uh, reconfigurations or whatever you call it. You know, the computer animated thing that this is what it should look like. And you can actually see the ruins and things of that nature. But uh, it's a pretty, pretty impressive place. But around this pool, John tells us that there's a multitude of invalids, blind people, lame, sick, paralyzed, people all over the place, laying around for some reason. For some reason, they're laying around. It's not until verse 7, though, that we kind of get some context as to why this multitude is laying around. Now, apparently, there's some supernatural occurrence that's taking place here. We gather from verse 7 that the waters in the pool are somehow stirred up, and then there's this rush to get into the water. It seems to be healed. Now, just a quick note here, because we could gloss over this very quickly, but I, I want to spend a little bit of time here. Look down at your John chapter 5 real quick. How many of your Bible translations list verse 4 that we just read? Like in the actual text. Okay, like two, three hands went up. Mine does not. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. But there is a footnote at the end of verse 3 that sort of directs me to the bottom of the page, and I want to read what my footnote says. My footnote says, Some manuscripts wholly or in part, insert, quote, Waiting for the moving of the water, for the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed, of whatever disease he had. So most of your translations didn't have that. A couple of you didn't. And you might be asking yourself, self, what's up with that? <laughs> and that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Here's, here's what many scholars believe is going on. So of the many, many manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, very few, if any of them, the originals ones, that is, contain the content of verse 4. Now, keep in mind, there, there was no verses at this time. It was just a document that was written. So what seems most likely is that at some point along the way, a scribe inserted that content, 
which is listed as verse 4, as a way of helping the reader to understand the context better. So now you're asking yourself, well, what else have the scribes added to the text? Maybe you're asking yourself that. I don't know. It's another good question, though. But here's, here's the thing. Of all of the ancient texts that we have in this world, there isn't one that has a larger collection of manuscripts than the Bible. Some of the ancient writings uh, that we have that are widely accepted as accurate and complete, we have like fewer than 10 copies of the, of the original manuscript. 10 copies. Fewer than that. And nobody blinks an eye at those. The New Testament, including translations, has around 25,000 manuscripts, portions of manuscripts. And some people toss that away. They're like, no, that, that doesn't count because you've got translations. Okay, we'll just talk original Greek text. The actual Greek text, over, not over, nearly 6,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And the evidence of copies being made of the original text, they come not long after the original. Some think between 30 and 150 years after the original where we start seeing copies uh, made out of that. Meaning there's very little time in between for there to be information getting lost, misinterpreted, etc., now, compare this to an ancient writing, uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, written in the first century BC. We have 10 copies of it. The earliest textual evidence we have was copied a thousand years after the original. A thousand years after the original. How much can, can get lost in translation over that time frame, right? Why do I say all that? Because the Bible can be trusted as more accurate than any other ancient writing the world has ever seen. Period. And if you want to invest more in that, I, I would encourage you to do that. Please do. And, and here's the thing. Are there textual variants among the manuscripts that we have? Yes, of course. But not one aspect of doctrine is changed or affected because of those textual variances. In other words, the meaning was not changed. In fact, if you look at this example right here, it's a perfect example it was introduced by some well-meaning scribe to help you understand the context better. That's all he was trying to do. Nothing about the overall story changes necessarily. So I hope that helps you kind of, maybe you didn't catch it, you're just reading a story like, this is a cool story. You didn't even notice that verse 4 was missing. we got to pay attention. <laughs> Those little numbers at the end of the, the verses, they mean things, and they're going to point you to what to look for. So um has, has very little to do with the actual meaning of our passage today, but I felt like, you know, it's worth investing some time in those kinds of things because if we are paying attention, we know that um, there are things that we need to consider about the text that we're looking at. Okay, moving forward, back to the pool. We've got this large group of invalids that are around the pool, and verse 5 highlights one person out of the many. We've got this man. He's disabled. We don't know exactly what's going on. He's, he's immobilized to some degree. For how long? 38 years. Man, could you imagine? 38 years. Jesus saw this man, said that he knew he had been that way for some time, and he asked him one simple question. Look at verse 6. The question is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, I often wonder what it was about this particular man that made Jesus pick him out of this vast crowd of invalids. Well, do you know what the answer is? 
We don't know. That's the answer. We don't know. <laughs> but what we do know is that this is a perfect picture of grace. Now, we have defined grace here at Pillar a certain way over the years, and I was curious if anybody remembers how we define grace as two words. Unmerited favor. I think we kind of got there eventually, yeah. But yeah, unmerited favor, meaning we don't deserve anything that the Lord gives us. And this is exactly what we see here. This man... Nothing set him apart. Nothing made him stand out. Nothing made him unique or earning the favor of God. And we also are in that same category. So the answer to why Jesus chose this man is yes. That's, that's why. Because he did. Got it. But his answer, though, interesting answer, tells us a lot about him. And it tells us a lot about ourselves if we're really honest. You think after 38 years of being an invalid, immobile, just sitting here, waiting, miserable, his answer would be like, yes, please, heal me, do something, anything. But how many of you know that the longer you're in a difficult and miserable situation, the easier it is to lose sight of what you're actually looking for? Some of us can see ourselves in that situation. And he simply explains why he's still in the same situation after nearly four decades. Look, there's nobody here to help me. I'm stuck. And even when I try to get in there myself, somebody else rushes in and beats me to it. So what's the point? That's kind of this guy's attitude, I would guess. This makes me wonder if we ever rely on others to do for us what only the Lord can do. Anyone? Looking for happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment in a relationship, a job, a status, a bank account, a hobby? I think we do this more often than we realize. We're relying on someone or something to give us, to do for us what only the Lord can do fulfill us and give us complete satisfaction and joy in him alone. Oftentimes, I, I, kind of, I didn't glance over it, but we talked about it last week. We sometimes only see one way out of a situation. Like, God, we're praying for this one thing and we want it to happen this way, and when it doesn't happen that way, we get all freaked out. For this man, it was only someone coming to help him into the pool that was going to bring a change to his condition. That's all he was looking for. Now, when that's the case, we don't look for other options. We just don't. Our mind is so focused on, I have to get into that pool. I have to get in that water. That's the only way that this is going to change. And when Jesus comes along, he's like, hey, <laughs> you, you want to get healed? Do you want change? You're like, I just got to get in this water. Nobody's helping me. I can't even. Our mind is so fixed on this is the way to do it. And so we don't look for options, and we simply sit there in our own misery waiting and desperate. Now, there may be some symbolism here. It's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I, I, I thought, you know, it's worth mentioning. What group of people waited miserably for nearly 40 decades hoping something would change? Israel in the desert, right? Now, they're wandering, but they were in the same mental condition, just waiting for something to change, not realizing that 
the Lord is right there leading them. And all they had to do was walk in his ways and keep his commandments. Just walk, go this way, follow him. But I think this kind of behavior, again, is a little bit more common, I guess, than, than we might realize. And I'm going to call it this. We're going to call it the as soon as condition. The as soon as condition. As soon as I'm healed from this ailment, then I'll be content. As soon as I find love in a relationship, then I'll be happy. As soon as I get a better job, then I can put my focus on my family. I mean, how many of us have, have, have had the as soon as condition in our own lives? As soon as, as soon as, as soon as. We, we see it all the time. What happens, though, in this scenario is that forward progress ceases. As we, we kind of become prisoners of our circumstances and, and we end up sitting on our mat just waiting. As soon as I can get into that water, man, everything is going to be great. We become trapped, in a sense, in this spot, just like that invalid, that when the solution comes along, we're paralyzed, actually unable to answer the question, do you want to be healed? What? <laughs> what? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want this to be made right? But... We get into this moment where we're, we've got this paralysis happening because we're so focused and fixed on one way of happening. Or we're just, as soon as, as soon as this happens, then I'll be good. We don't see the solution of Jesus Christ right there in front of us. Thankfully, before this man has any chance of missing out on this incredible gift from God, Jesus offers him a handful of life-changing words. Get up, take your bed or your mat, and walk. Get up, take take your bed, and go. Just walk. Do it. It's here that Jesus shows us that he is the one and only one that brings true healing and life. And it actually cost him his own life, which we'll get to in a minute toward the end of the section here. But this man, he seems to take Jesus at his word because he's instantly healed. And what does he do? He gets up on his own two feet, completely healed, and he begins to walk. No need for some healing waters. No need for things to play out exactly as he had planned them for. No need for anything other than Jesus Christ. And friends, that is how we are to come to Jesus. Completely reliant upon him. Fully trusting in his promises. Believing that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, that is, the Savior of the world, we'd be ruined, bankrupt, just done. God is ready and able to do for people of this world which they cannot do for themselves, namely, save them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He can do it. And he will. We just need to have our eyes pointed in the right direction. And at this point, uh, we have uh, the bigger issue, I think, of the storyline coming into view. So the Jewish leaders are upset. Why are they upset? Well, they see this man carrying his mat, 
his bed on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Got an, they got mad. Eventually, they're going to shift their focus from the man to Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and then to Jesus comparing himself and making himself equal with God. But again, we're going to get there. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. But doesn't it strike anyone just the little bit as, as odd that not a single Jewish leader was moved by the fact that this 38-year invalid was healed? They just glossed right over that. They're like, hey, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? How dare you? I mean, wow. Doesn't that just show the condition of their hearts? Hardened against the things of God. They just didn't even see it. They were so worried about keeping the law, they didn't even acknowledge this incredible miracle that Jesus had just performed. <laughs> More concerned about observing the, the law of God than the God of the law. I, I, my, I kind of feel sorry for this guy. <laughs> Here he is taking his first steps, you know, maybe ever, but at least in the last 38 years, he's super excited and pumped. It's like, yes, I've been healed. And the first encounter he has is, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Knock it off. Put that mat down. It's like just being robbed of my opportunity to celebrate what the Lord has done. And there's a lesson here for us as well, church. Jesus meets us where we are. We know that. He heals us. He makes us whole. But we still have our scars. We have our stories. We have our mats that we're carrying. And these things are a testimony to the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so don't be so quick to abandon the evidence of what Jesus has done in you. Like that guy could have just like thrown that mat like, I'm out of here. Forget all about what Jesus had done. In fact, we should be looking for ways to leverage these things for the sake of the gospel. Look what Jesus has done for me. Yeah, look at my scars. Look, hear my stories. Look at what I'm carrying. But look at what he's done for me. He can do the same thing for you. That's a powerful testimony, church. But sometimes we just try to cover up the past or we try to, you know, just abandon who we were. It's not that we live in the guilt or the shame of what we were doing and what we were. But we use that as an evidence of what transforming power the gospel has in our lives. So don't be so quick to abandon the evidence in our lives. Now the story sort of comes to a head. And, and Jesus, he goes and he seeks out the man in the temple. We saw that. And he tells him something very important in verse 14. He says, see, you're, you are well. And then what does he tell him? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Church, this man has been an invalid for 38 years. What's worse than that? Like, how could it get possibly worse? That downright miserable experience. And yet Jesus says, hey, be careful. There's something worse that can happen to you if you stay in your sin. So what is Jesus saying here? It seems like he's telling this man that even though you've been physically healed, you've been made whole in that way, your sin is still the bigger issue that needs to be addressed. There's no evidence that this man repented and believed. He was just, he was healed physically. 
So his sin, again, was still the biggest concern in his life. And so the world sees so many of their difficult circumstances and trials as their biggest tr problems in their life. All of these huge issues and challenging things that are in my life, that's, that's the headline of my life. Those are the big problems, when in reality, the only problem that truly matters is the sin problem in their lives and in our own lives. That's why Jesus came in the first place, right? Again, I told you, seek and save the lost. He is the only true solution to the sin in our lives, period. His sinless life, sacrificial death, was required for the redemption of all of mankind. Church, we talk about this every single week for a reason. The gospel is the, the, the crux to all of what we're doing, what we're talking about. In his death, Jesus paid the price for your sin and for mine. The penalty that we should have paid for our disobedience to God. The sin in our lives. He took our punishment on our behalf. Received the wrath of God in our place. He tells us in Mark what we ought to do with that. Repent and believe. Take Jesus at his word. Jesus is the Savior of the world, just as he said he was. Amen? So all of this that we've been talking about in John chapter 5, it's all wrapped up in this event, and we have the first domino to fall in the very death of Jesus. So from this point forward, we read in verse 18, now their mind is fixed. Jesus must go. That's their whole focus. Jesus, religious leaders were bent on him killing, or being killed, I should say. And that's kind of what I was hinting at earlier. All of this is leading somewhere. All these actions, him healing on the Sabbath, and what he said in verse 18, making himself equal with God. These are very big problems for the Jewish leaders. But I think it's interesting, and we should note this, that it wasn't until Jesus went public with his signs, his miracles, that the persecution came. Remember the first two miracles, the signs of John so far? The water into wine, and what was the other one? The nobleman's son, right? So both of those things happened pretty much in private. The wedding servants knew about the miracle, and the family of the, the, the nobleman's son, right? Those were the only ones that really knew what was going on. So now Jesus performs his third sign out in the public, on a Sabbath, which would have drawn tremendous attention to himself. Immediately, the persecution begins. Immediately. Again, there's a lesson for us here, church. The moment that we go public with Jesus, the pressure comes. The persecution comes. Expect it, but don't be discouraged by it. Expect it, but don't be discouraged by it. Why? Because verse 17 gives us what we need to continue in our mission with hope and confidence and courage. He says, the Father has been and is always working, and Jesus is working as well. Right? We have an advocate for us in Christ who never ceases to work on our behalf. He's the one who's always with us, equipping us, stay the course, leading us, guiding us, equipping us, all those things that I just said. He's constant. There's no vacation days, no office hours. You know, he is always there, always at work, period. And this is an amazing and wonderful blessing from the Lord. 
So uh, do me a favor, if you will. Not right this moment, but do, do me a favor. Sometime before you close your eyes for the night, reread the story and ask yourself three questions. What does this story tell me about God? What does this story tell me about myself or people? And what do I need to do as a result? And see what God does with that. Sounds very simple, very basic. But these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking when we read the scriptures. I keep telling us that we need to have this, what I call it last week, the word response, right? Reflex. Thank you. These are practical questions that we can ask ourselves to develop that reflex in us. Well, I know that God heals. I see that. What else do I learn about God? Well, he's not a respecter of persons. He went out and just got that one guy out of all the ones. So there, there's some aspect. Whatever that is, what does it teach us about people? I don't know. You tell me. And then lastly, what does that mean for me? What am I going to do with that? I mentioned the idea last week of what do we know, stop, do, or change. How is this passage going to shape what we're going to do this week? So do me that favor if you would before you go to sleep tonight. Reread it, ask those three questions, and see what God does with it. And I'd love to hear maybe some stories or testimonies of, of what he reveals to you and then how it plays out through this week. So you don't have to, you know, pinky swear or, or give me a high five or anything like that. Just, just going to leave it at that. If you would, indulge me in the Lord in that. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, we are, again, just tremendously grateful for your word and this incredible story of this man who had been healed after 38 years and the lessons, the, the things that we learned from this particular story that John has captured for us are meaningful. And we need to know that Lord, you are our advocate, and you work on our behalf, and you you can be approached at any time. We can trust in you. We can trust in your promises. And Lord, we, we want to be walking through life with our eyes fixed on you. You call us to walk by faith and not by sight. But Lord, we also, we also want to be headed in a direction. We want to know where it is that you're leading us and where you're calling us. Is We're just wandering in the same circle again and again, just kind of getting stuck like this invalid man. Um, no, we don't want to be just stuck on our mats, just sitting there waiting for things to play out in, in a way that we have envisioned without including you in the process. Lord, just casting that vision for ourselves and for our families. And where are we going? And how are we going to get there? Lord, your word says, without, without vision, the people perish. God, show us. Lead us. Direct our paths. We need your help. And we know we can trust in you with all that we have. So thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.